Welcome to Politically Speaking, Scotland's flagship political podcast. My name is Mandy Rhodes. I'm the editor of Hollywood Magazine. And joining me to discuss the week in politics is my award-winning writer, Liam Kirkcaldy. Join myself and Mandy, and the odd politician, of course, as we chew the political fat and spit it out on the pages of the forthcoming issue of Hollywood Magazine. And when I asked to be referred to a specialist NHS menopause clinic, I was asked by my male GP what that even was. Both pieces of advice, the the moment when he's proud and the moment when he says, you've never lain in three feet of water. I think both pieces of advice in balance are how you can how you can do your job to the best of your ability, actually. I, I think he's I think he's correct. Yeah, they did. They, they, they actually made him... This is a man already being referred to as Dishy Sunak, actually, due to his fan club. I think it's quite a small fan club, probably. And vaccine. I've never seen the vaccine scientists work at this pace. It's astonishing. Okay, so first up this week, we have Good Week, Bad Week. That's a regular part of the show where we talk about the changing fortunes of political players in Scotland and beyond. Mandy, I've got an idea for a good week this week. I think it's a pretty straightforward one. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it is a good week for the Chancellor following his um, economic scheme unveiled at the start of the week. Um, yeah. It seemed to go pretty well for him. Yeah. Um, under the plan, diners will get a 50% a 50% off discount in a restaurant during August. Um, As long as it is between Monday to Wednesday, they'll get uh, £10 per head off as well. So it's basically an economic strategy by Groupon deal, as far as I understand it. But it did seem to go down quite well. Yeah, I mean, this is a chancellor now being tipped as a future prime minister. So I suppose it is a good week for him. I mean, this time last year, he was a very junior minister in a junior department of local government and being dubbed, he's now being dubbed or was being dubbed Baby Chino, chancellor in name only. (laughs) <laughs> that is awful. Who did that? I, think that, I think that has moved on now and now yeah. he's a prime minister in waiting it's amazing how fortunes can move as you say on um basically a meal deal mm-hmm. <laughs> so um i bet i guess you could say he has quite literally dished up his economic recovery plan yeah they did they, they, they actually made him this is a man already being referred to as dishy sunak actually <laughs> to his fan club. Oh, I think it's quite a small fan club, probably. Um, yeah. I wonder if that's the same fan club then that um, felt that the Eat Out to Help Out campaign oh. <laughs> was a bit of a euphemism. There was quite a lot of sniggering with some very, yeah. very dirty-minded Britons reading some too very, much into that slogan. There were some lewd jokes from people that I honestly thought better of, to be honest. I was disappointed. <laughs> I wasn't but- angry. I particularly liked um, the Twitter uh, Ferrari over it. I suppose there were nice memes of Prince Andrew saying, um, looking pleased and thinking he could remember he visited uh, a Pizza Express on a Wednesday night. Um, So now he has a voucher that would make it even better for him. One thing I will say is I did actually appreciate the the photo op of him handing out dishes. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Because you you wouldn't have understood the policy if you hadn't seen the Chancellor carrying plates. But uh, yeah. He did. He got his, his sleeves rolled up. He carried two plates at once, which is, I would say, not great for a waiter in general. But, yeah. you know, he's, he's, yeah, he might improve. But the other problem was he wasn't wearing a face mask. No, no, he wasn't. Um. And also, Liam, these, these photo ops, I mean, so the Chancellor carrying plates and we've had the whole kind of pull a pint for patriotism, etc. But they're never very good at these things. There's always a huge head on a pint, um, mm-hmm. you know. 
that's actually something that you, there's probably a business plan in that. You know, I could become a consultant where I go in and teach politicians how to carry three plates at once or how to pour a pint in a normal way. Um, I suppose it's, you know, I have this long-standing theory that you shouldn't really be allowed to go into politics unless you've worked for about a year in a crowded bar, cafe or restaurant, because I don't think you understand just how bad the general public are until you do that. That's true. <laughs> but I just, I, I worry about these gimmicks anyway. I just think they always tend to to go wrong. So, I mean, remember that time Boris Johnson um, was playing, was it football? And w- no, just rugby. smashed into Sorry, a rugby yeah. and smashed a into child. a child. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Absolutely, yeah, smashed him. Kezia Dugdale booted that football at the photographers, although I actually really liked that. I thought that I was suspect she meant that. Did. Oh, yeah, I mean, you would, wouldn't you? You're Kezia Dugdale getting that media coverage. I think you yeah. would stick a football at them. Hello. I think, you know, regardless, though, for Rishi Sunak, a Conservative Chancellor who is splashing tens of billions of pounds uh, out, no wonder he's feeling the love and is being pitched as a future Prime Minister. But yeah, big yeah. problem, I think, was no extra money for the NHS or for carers. Mm. Um, which kind of leads us on to probably bad week. Bad week, yes, that does that makes sense. Yes, are you thinking is this this is in reference to Boris Johnson's yeah. comments on care homes? Yeah, so Boris Johnson basically was accusing care home owners for the deaths of old people during the pandemic for not following the procedures. And I, you know, I know you'll laugh at this, but not for the first time, I found myself agreeing with Piers Morgan. <laughs> who, You've become uh, <laughs> a Piers Morgan fan over the last couple of months. It I've has to that. change. I think something happened to me, you know, during this lockdown. I don't know what's going on. But yeah, basically, was... he he said, "Here's a government that clapped for the carers and then blamed them for the deaths." Yes, and this is obviously Boris Johnson arguing in the same context that we should be clapping bankers. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a difficult a, sentence. <laughs> it's, a, it's a funny one, isn't it? Because I mean, he's on record. Everyone knows exactly what he said. So. He, he was on a visit to Yorkshire and he said, we discovered too many care homes didn't really follow the procedures in the way that they could, could have. Uh-huh. I mean, given that 20,000 people died in care homes, I mean, it's just um, completely tone deaf. Mm-hmm. And then, and and then again, yeah. you had... Um, Number 10, later insisting that the PM was absolutely not blaming care homeowners. Mm. And and the Prime Minister, I mean, his way out of these things is basically just to say that he didn't say it, even when yeah. we can all see the evidence that he did. Yeah, Keir Starmer responded, saying oh, the yeah. comments were shameful. Um, the government's own advice at the start of the pandemic said people in care homes were very unlikely to be un- uh, to be infected. Now yeah. Boris Johnson is trying to shift the blame. It, it, it kind of reminded me a bit of the time that he went to the hospital and stood in front of broadcast cameras saying that there was no media there. <laughs> I, know. I know. I mean, it's just bizarre. I mean, actually, Keir Starmer during PMQs, I think he gave the Prime Minister six opportunities to say sorry for his comments, and he just he just kept denying it, and in the yeah. end, just called um, Keir Starmer Captain Hindsight. Yeah, which is a, I think is a South Park reference. It's quite <laughs> a, um, yeah, there's a character in South Park called Captain Hindsight. I didn't right. know Boris Johnson was a fan. I'm surprised by that, I'm honest. Maybe it shows that political advisors are getting younger. Yeah. I mean, the problem with Boris Johnson is the evidence is there, and he keeps saying that no one had warned of the dangers of asymptomatic transmissions, but that's Mm -hmm. also blatantly untrue. You know, scientists were flagging up the possibility in January, and for the government Mm. then to have discharged untested patients into care homes, I guess was at best reckless, but, you know, that's a scandal that still rumbles on in Scotland. Yeah, where we've yeah. basically followed the same path. But I mean, is, is there an argument that actually this is quite a good strategy for him? 
you know, it's not like these groveling apologies. If he did come out and say, you know, we really we made a mistake here, this has all gone wrong, he'd probably suffer for it more than if he just denies reality. Yeah, you know, it's it, it quite happen. successful. It's, it's worked for politicians quite a bit recently. You know, oh, uh, well, yeah. Yeah, I, I so, guess you're talking about Humza, Yusuf. Humza, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, Prime Minister saying he never said things that are in clear sight is also something that we can apply to the Scottish Parliament and the Justice Secretary. So uh-huh. his claim to the Health Committee that about 20% of travellers arriving in Scotland were receiving follow-up checks to ensure they were obeying quarantine rules, when in fact not one check had been made because the Scottish Government didn't have access to the data from the Home Office to make Mm. the checks in the first place. But he then made matters worse because he'd also said that the police had told him that compliance with the rules had been very high, when the police actually had no role in checking compliance, but also no checks had ever been made possible anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not not good. Um, It's not not good when you have to write to the committee to to clarify, and by clarify, I mean kind of U-turn on, on what you said. Yeah, well, to be fair, Humza didn't try and pretend like the PM that he hadn't said what he said, mm. but he did blame officials for duff information, which also yes. isn't a great look. Yeah, that's right. And then I suppose it, it sort of got bogged down in an argument about the Home Office and about whether um, the Scottish government was able to access information. But I suppose that doesn't make much difference. If you're saying that these checks are taking place and they're not, it doesn't yeah. really matter why that is. Exactly. I think that was throwing a squirrel into it, really, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's uh, typical for Scottish politics to get dragged into that sort of dispute. I, I know. And I think the other the other thing that's interesting at the moment is it's that dragging in of civil servants who normally mm-hmm. would always be in the background, but A, to blame them for something um, isn't good. But, but civil servants in general have become much more visible during mm-hmm. this. I mean, we've had um, Sir Philip Rottenham, who claimed back in April um, that he had been constructively dismissed by mm-hmm. Pretty Patel because of bullying allegations. And then yeah. you've seen Mark Sedwell, who left yeah, Boris Johnson's government. Yeah. yeah, so that came out this week. And it? It I think he's, yeah. it's about a quarter of a million pounds um, that he's going to receive when he, he hasn't actually stepped down yet. That was that was always a quite a odd story in a way, because he... <laughs> I mean, it was effectively he was consciously um, uncoupling or decoupling from the UK government, as far as I can tell. It was, you know, he wrote a, a letter saying that he had he had not resigned, but he had left his post by agreement with the PM. He said, we had concluded it was time to split the jobs again and have a separate security advisor and separate cabinet secretary. However, now it looks like he's getting quite a big payout. And I mean, it's, there are all sorts of reasons for that, I suppose, but it doesn't look like it was particularly happy. Well, I think it, I think it wasn't particularly happy. That's right, and uh, the splitting of the role, and I think that had Dominic Cummings's fingerprints all over it. But yeah. actually, the quarter of million pounds—that's um, his pension contributions. Mm. Um, but it's not a good look right now, is it? It's not, no. Um, and also, when someone says their departure was quote entirely amicable, your first thought is that. I mean, it probably it wasn't isn't. entirely amicable, was it? I mean, you don't normally say I that. Yeah. I think, you know, the general observation for me at the moment is that civil servants used to be in the background, kind of leaving the politics to the politicians. Mm-hmm. But increasingly during the pandemic, they're, they're becoming front and centre and lines yeah. can get a little bit blurred. Um, and in fact, this week on the podcast, we've got an interview with Jason Leach, who aside mm. from becoming the Scottish government's face and voice of COVID, he pops up on our TV every day. In his day job, he's the National Clinical Director of Healthcare Quality and Strategy of the Scottish Government. Mm. Um, and 
I guess during this pandemic, he has been accused every now and again of what he might describe as overspeaking or what my granny might have described as letting his tongue run away with his head. Um, <laughs> so, but he's been really fascinating. And I think he's, it's been a learning experience for him too, when you're suddenly plunged into the media spotlight and you're being asked questions that might have a political angle and you mm. have to be careful as a civil servant that you're not encroaching in that space. So yeah, he's had yeah. some interesting things to say, which we'll listen to now. Jason Leach, you're the National Clinical Director of the Scottish Government. What actually is that? I'm kind of asking myself that over the last <laughs> month, Mandy, if I'm totally honest. It, traditionally, there are three senior clinicians who advise the senior politician. There's the Chief Medical Officer, the Chief Nursing Officer, and the National Clinical Director. And my peacetime job is safety and quality of the health system, planning of how the health system will work, and quite a lot of work on improvement of the health system, so how you make the systems better. That changed a little over the yeah. last four months, although I still have responsibility for much of that. But the three of us have come together as a kind of triad of advisors around mm -hmm. the pandemic. Each of us have slightly different skills. Each of us have slightly different networks of individuals, both here and around the world. So I have become kind of the front man for some of the messaging. Equally, Fiona and Gregor have done some of that too, but I've become the, let's call it the the call, the, the public call-in voice, will we? So I'm the one who does the phone-ins yeah. and uh, trying to adapt it to the off-the-ball audience as best I can. So basically, you have become the face and the voice of the Scottish Government COVID advice. Did, was there any testing done of whether people would find you believable, wanted to listen to you, anything like that? For heaven's sake, I hope not. <laughs> the, there, was, there was, though, a, a conversation quite early on with, and people will think this is, this is perhaps uh, not true. I, it is true. There was quite a good conversation early on with Cabinet Secretary for Health, Gene Freeman, and the First Minister about the communication that you should do during a pandemic. The WHO have six things that you've got to do and like test and protect and get the prevalence of the virus down, things you would expect the WHO to say, but they also say that you have to engage and communicate your population. So you're in a pandemic, it's not like, it's not like asthma. It, your, your asthma inhaler affects you. It doesn't affect me. This is a, a global pandemic that's infected at least 10 million people. We require the population to behave differently. So we made quite an early, or they made quite an early decision that we would share the communication much more broadly than we would traditionally. We would still keep a separation between the politics and the advice and the clinical advice, and that's absolutely correct. And occasionally I've had to push back journalists who have wanted me to get involved in, in a slightly more political way than I uh, should or would want to. I think I, others will have to judge, but I think that division has worked in Scotland. I think we have taken a slightly broader view of communication than in some other international countries about the clinical advice going to the public and then, of course, the political elements of the crisis. Now, medical professionals aren't always renowned for being able to explain things in a clear and simple way to the population. Have you had to think about that? Have you had to think about how basic and fundamental you make the messaging? 
so I've, I've had I've had elements of it for a while. So I so I haven't been scared of media throughout my career. Right. So I was a dentist, and then an oral surgeon. So I did head and neck type surgery for a while, and then did some public health. So I so I have done some media. You you unfortunately, whether you like it or not, have interviewed me before. We we've mm-hmm. had similar conversations. This is on a different scale and a different level. Live live press conferences every few days or every day is is new for me. So I've had to learn. I've made some mistakes along the way. I've overspoken a couple of times, but you can't give a thousand interviews and not make a mistake. It, 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 and actually, I think stepping up to say, well, you know what? When I was asked the 400th question this morning, I may have overspoken. I, I, I think the public in the main respond quite well to that. I have, I have endeavored to do what my mother always told me. My mother told me when I was a little boy, at times of crisis, son, revert to the truth. So I, I have endeavoured to do that and do it from a from a perspective of trying to save as many lives in the country as I can in an environment where there isn't a folder on the wall that you can take down and tell you how to do it. Is that the difficulty? I mean, I, I suppose if we look back at the beginning, things that you've said around face masks and your wife going to stereophonics concert, all these things are going to be thrown back at you as a pandemic progresses and we learn more about it. Was it inevitable that perhaps some of the advice you gave at the beginning might not have been good advice? I, I think much of the advice that we even give on the 7th, so this is the 7th of July. If you ask me the position today, I will tell you the truth as I know it today. If you bring me back on the 7th of October, I'll bet you my advice on the 7th of July makes little sense. So I, I think it's inevitable in a fast-moving pandemic and a virus that we understand more about every day. I get. 30 or 40 scientific papers on this virus every day. I cannot keep up with it. No, Nobody can keep up with it. So we have systems in place for how we do that and how we try and manage that. So we now know, for instance, that, that children are much less uh, susceptible to the virus and don't seem to spread it at the same rate. We, di- we didn't know that at the beginning of March. We, we didn't know particularly that outdoors was a lot better than indoors. We, we could guess some of that, but the virus, this virus has literally only existed for six, for six months. So inevitably, if you go back and you replay me saying that masks were this or large-scale gatherings were that, but there has to be a day, Mandy, where you stop. If you're going to have a global pandemic for a respiratory virus, there is a day when you stop mass gatherings. There's also a day before you stop mass gatherings. Now, the, the question is when that day should be, of, of course, and that's a completely legitimate question. But if I go on TV with Piers Morgan the week before mass gatherings are cancelled and he says to me, are we cancelling mass gatherings? The answer is no. The answer has to be no until the day the decision is made to cancel mass gatherings. But that wasn't your decision, was it? The, the decisions are not mine. It's an important distinction. It's not quite as black. It sounds as though... Gregor and I, the chief medical officer, write this mysterious document and we send it up the chain and the first minister sits in a bunker and she then makes the decision and that decision is then passed down to the rest of us. It's not quite like that. It's it's more conversational than that. But yes, in an, in an elected democracy, nobody elected me. Nobody put me in charge. So the first minister and the cabinet and the parliament and the scrutiny of that hold her to account, and she makes the decisions. And that's exactly as it should be. Now, that she she's conversational. She seeks advice. 
from a variety of sources, not just from the clinicians. Remember, she's going to seek advice from the chief economist, from her other cabinet members, from others. But yes, in the end, the cabinet and the first minister rightly make those choices. Do you think they've always been the right choices? I think when we look back and the history is written, there will be times when we could have done things differently, either advisors or as decision makers. And I think uh, the First Minister has been very upfront about that. I think there is a danger of getting lost in the minutiae of it now when we're still dealing with 400 people in hospital and a number of people in intensive care and outbreaks and et cetera, et cetera. So I, I I'm very happy to be held accountable, and I I actually at some level quite look forward to the fact I will get to some parliamentary committees to be able to answer back some of the criticism that I can't answer publicly just now. But equally, I'll be very comfortable with saying, well, at the time, I did my best. I I gave the best advice I could on that Thursday because it was fast moving and we didn't know and blah, blah, blah. Exactly as you would expect. it's, It's not as simple as Twitter perhaps suggests. But it is fair, isn't it, that if we accept, and and you've said it yourself and so has the First Minister, that if mistakes perhaps have been made, that it's fair enough that we also, that going into this, that it's fair enough that we then start asking questions as we come out of it, rather than waiting for us to come out of it and then ask all the questions. Of, of course. And I think we're, I think maybe we're conflating two different things. I, I, I am absolutely comfortable that we learn as we go. You can't, you can't do this without learning as you go. If that's done in a constructive mood of learning, I am all for it. And I had conversations this weekend with Australian colleagues. I've had conversations with those in Canada and America and other parts of the world and my English colleagues. Tonight, Gregor and I will be on the four country clinicians call that we have into the evenings on one or two nights a week. It's just just gone down to one night a week. That's my late. That's my new uh, evening party week. It's not. It's not really. You could do uh, it in a beer garden now, though. We could now do it in a beer garden, distanced. So, so there is considerable learning inside the those of us across the world who are trying to deal with this. I am very comfortable with talking to constructive individuals from outside that direct circle. What What gets me down a little bit, if I'm totally honest, is is just sniping from the sidelines. That that doesn't seem now to help to help us very much. But if, if there is constructive advice and and ways of doing that differently, then I am of course happy to learn. I think probably the the biggest element of criticism remains at the moment around care homes. Um, and today already we've had the prime minister coming under criticism for implying that care home owners were to blame for the huge death toll we've got as if you know they hadn't followed the precautions in the way that they'd been told i mean the first minister's talked about her sadness already about the care homes and the death toll there what are your feelings about it because i think for those of us on the outside who don't have the qualifications it's easy for us to say oh this isn't rocket science you know you discharge people from hospital without testing them this is where we're going to end up how would you counter that? So there's layers of of challenge in that question, Mandy, and, and a long, long answer which I won't I won't bore you with. The f- the first thing to say is yes, of course. When you lie in bed at night or you're in a conversation about about the misery that this virus has caused, of of course that affects you as a human being and as a a, a 
a person who has friends and family in care homes. I mean, not, none of us are immune to this virus or the challenges of this virus in our own family and our own set of loved ones. So I have friends and family in care homes. I, I've had somebody die in a care home, not of COVID, but during a COVID outbreak in a in a care home. So it, it shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody that we are as emotionally engaged in this process as as everybody else is. Now, there are decisions that you make at moments in time, for instance, delayed discharge decisions. Delayed discharges, remember, are people who are fit to leave hospital and everything clinical says they should leave. And that decision is a joint decision between three sets of people, the discharging clinicians, the receiving clinicians, and the family and the patient themselves. And that's exactly as it should be. So a care home or a care at home service or a a GP, in consultation with the discharging care team, that might be a care of the elderly unit, might be a dialysis unit, they have a conversation to say, Mary is ready to leave. Mary is healthy. She's had her hip done. We're keen that she gets back to the care home, and they decide. Now, those decisions were made with the best of intentions and to put people in as safe an environment as they possibly could, because hospitals are not safe. Hospitals, as you know, I've led for a dozen years the Scottish Patient Safety Programme. Nobody understands the level of hospital safety that's been required in this country better than the group of people who have been doing that safety programme. So yes, there are compromises and decisions made in those discharges. This virus is evil for the elderly. Now, we understood that, but we probably understand it even more now that the single biggest risk factor for this virus is age. And if we could go back and do our time again, I'm not sure what we would do differently. We sent, we did have good guidance in place for infection and prevention control. And clumsy though some of the uh, blame has been, the, the responsibility for the safety of our elderly residents in care homes and in our hospitals is a joint responsibility between owners, care teams, family, it, it, all of us are in that game together trying to do our best. Do you think, though, we'll come out of this? So there are two things, I suppose. I mean, the delayed discharge issue had been an enormous scandal for some time in terms of opposition MPs and MSPs, and that that was solved overnight, but then became a problem for what happened in care homes. Do you think we will think differently about how we care for our elderly as we come out of this? I, I think we already are. I, I think we've seen compassion and care and misery all mixed together in in this pandemic both with people in hospital at their in their own homes looked after by family and in care homes and i and i think it has pulled into sharp relief the challenges of an aging population and trying to care for them and look after them in in this modern world and the pandemic has brought that into sharp relief and i think we will both clinicians and I think politicians, both in power and in opposition, will have to think carefully about what a care sector should look like in the modern world. And the pandemic will cause us to do that faster than we perhaps would have. Every, I've got lots of friends in Scandinavia, and the healthcare world is relatively small. Every country in the world is struggling with this, struggling with a sustainable solution to long-term care of an aging population. And nobody quite knows what to do with it. You can go to Japan and see a version with lots of tiny little hospitals. You can come to Scotland and see a version that has more care homes than most populations. You go to Scandinavia 
and see many, many people cared for at home with care at home settings. I don't know what's what's the right version, but I I know we have to look at reform. Mm-hmm. For you personally, what's been the hardest um, criticism or the most ridiculous thing that you've been accused of in this situation? <laughs> Two different questions. The, the the just abuse shouters, which I've I've actually not had before. I, I, I'm I'm not a hardened politician with a big thick skin. Or a, a journalist. Or, or a journalist. <laughs> I'm a kind of I'm a kind of extrovert clinician who, in the main. Has has been on on stages and giving lectures to to uh, believers, if you'll forgive the expression, people who people who think the same path is is the right path. So so the direct abuse is new for me, and I, initially that that bothered me a little bit. But the, just the name calling, I've I've got over. That doesn't really trouble me. The ones the ones that get under my skin, if I'm honest, Mandy, are the ones that question my integrity, question somehow. I'm doing it for conspiracy reasons. And I've been equally accused of, particularly in Scotland, two, two sides of that conspiracy. I've been confused of a raging unionist and a raging nationalist. So maybe, maybe if I get both in equal measure, I'm, my, my balance is about right. I, I am neither, for the record. I am, I, I'm neither of those uh, extremes, if it, if it helps anybody. Welcome to is, my world. <laughs> the, other, the other thing is I, I, I don't like how it affects my family. Yeah. So I I don't like that my my wife who's a who's a high school teacher who's been hugely supportive throughout this, and and my uh, nearly eighty year old mum who watches every media appearance and watches every interview and is is wonderfully supportive apart from my haircuts which she criticises <laughs> is is uh, is affected by some of that as well. So that so that can be a little bit tricky. But people working in much much worse circumstances than me. My my father was a coal miner and says I should just pull myself together. For goodness sake, it's not a real job anyway. Isn't part of it that, that there's a kind of it might be a fallacy if you like that people believe that clinicians like playing God, so this should be your ideal platform right now. Yeah, maybe there is there is a danger that that, that people think. Well, there's two extremes there, isn't there? There is a danger that some people think we actually are at all times more knowledgeable than them. That that somehow we have special truth. It's not true. I mean, we're mm. we're reading the same scientific papers that are available publicly. We are living and breathing it in long days and long hours and long weeks. But we, but we don't have we don't have special powers against anybody else that they don't have. And then the other extreme, I suppose, is they they think we're part of a conspiracy, whether that's a political conspiracy or a conspiracy to kill the old people or whatever conspiracy you might like to take, that we're keeping secrets, that if we just told everybody to rinse with hot, salty water, then that would solve the pandemic. <laughs> and all, all of these extremes are, of course, ridiculous. We're, we're, we're human beings with clinical and public health experience trying to take a country through what is literally unprecedented. I, I, I looked the other day because I was being asked in a, in a media interview about the MERS epidemic, the Middle East yeah. Respiratory Syndrome, that everybody says we should have paid more attention to. And if we just noticed what was happening with MERS, then we would have been ready. And MERS, the M-E-R-S, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, affected 2,500 people globally. It infected mm-hmm. 2,500 people. This virus has infected at least 10 million, probably closer to 100 million, because some countries have no testing of any kind, sub-Saharan Africa. So, so this is like nothing we've ever known. So everybody at some level 
has to make it up. We have to learn as we go because there is no manual. Have you been given everything that you know? Have you been frightened by this? I'm not frightened by the virus. I'm frightened by what it does to particularly old people, which is why some of the advice we've given has been to remove the personal liberty of the population. I mean, if, if, you, if you stop for a moment and think about what we've done, mm. it's astonishing. If, mm. I had, if, I had, if you and I had spoken last October and I'd said, you know what, in March, I'm thinking we might have to stop all sport. We might have to shut the schools. We're going to tell everybody except essential workers to stay in their houses. We're going to shut all the shops. We're going to put all those businesses at risk. You're not going to be able to get a haircut. And, you, and we're going to tell 180,000 people in the Shielded Group to stay in their homes and not leave for three months. You would have thought I was absolutely mm -hmm. crazy. So, so the extreme level of that societal intervention, I think, can't be underestimated. So that does, at some level, fill me with a, a kind of so, so a civil service one. A civil servant once told me that it was an entirely different subject. I can't remember what we were doing, but he came in to see me one day, and I'm not a typical civil servant. You might agree. He came in to see me one day, and he said, "You've got to be careful today, Jason, because today you're playing with live ammunition." And it, it does feel as though some of the decisions we're making have a huge societal implication. And the responsibility of that isn't lost on me or on Gregor or Fiona or others. And we're not, we're not trying to divert it just that, oh, well, it's easy for us because the politicians make the final decisions. Well, that, that's true, but they do it based on a lot of advice from the likes of them. I mean, actually, I probably last October might have said to you, it wouldn't it be good in terms of public health challenges that we could just make the population very compliant? Um, you know, you and I have had conversations about obesity and other big public health challenges. I mean, the compliance of the nation in your lockdown is extraordinary. It is extraordinary. And, and the behavioural scientists... Uh, at the beginning of lockdown, and one of the reasons why you have to choose a date for lockdown is behavioral science. They said pe people, will, people will not do it forever. You have to tell them the why, almost more importantly than the what, because the why it will get people's emotional engagement about what to do. So, so you'll get 14-year-olds to do it because you tell them it's about protecting their granny. I, and it is. It, it's not a lie. It, it, it's true. So the compliance has been extraordinary. We, we can't do that forever, though, because people own the businesses. Pe people mm. have lost their jobs. And the, the job retention scheme has been helpful from the UK government in order to get us through that, that the, the bill that that leaves in society will, will be significant. And those of us with, with public health interest and with public health, long history of public health, and you can't be mentored by Sir Harry Burns and not have a thought for what the lockdown itself is doing for public health as opposed to the virus doing for public mm -hmm. health. So that makes you look at the numbers of domestic violence calls, the number of uh, cases of chronic disease which are not being seen in our GPs. So I have no doubt that we are storing up health challenges for the near and medium term. But mm -hmm. the, the decision was that harm number one, the coronavirus harm, was, was worth that debt. And, and that, that when the history is written, that, that will, we'll only know in years to come whether, whether those choices were the right choices. 
do you think we're going to start to get back to some kind of normality? And what will that normality look like? And if you've got a time frame? (laughs) So, yes, I think we are. I think you can see us stepping slowly globally out of it. I've got a niece in Melbourne who called us this morning, and they've had 200 new cases, and they've Mm -hmm. gone into another six-week lockdown. So I don't think the journey is smooth out. I think it is gradual. Dumfries and Galloway gives us, uh, Mm -hmm. just this week, a little idea of what a local, very small, contained outbreak might look like. But I cannot guarantee that there won't be a sudden surge in Aberdeen or in a piece of Musselburgh or wherever, and we'll have to do some things. I am very hopeful that we won't have to do national lockdown again. I don't know, and and it will depend on particularly winter, and it will depend Mm -hmm. on what happens with science. So we've already got better drugs and slightly old-fashioned drug, to our great surprise, which is helping reduce mortality in the very, very sick. But we don't have anything for early in the disease. We don't have anything that stops you getting very sick or anything that prevents it. And vaccine. I've never seen the vaccine scientists work at this pace. It's astonishing. The global cooperation, the funding is all better than it's ever been. So I am hopeful that we will get to a point where we may be able to get a vaccine in the first half of next year. The pessimistic vaccine scientists say it's never coming. The optimistic vaccine scientists say it might even happen this year. But do you think, I mean, I'm very conscious now of how often I touch my face and all these kind of things. Our behaviour has probably changed for the long term. Yeah, I think it probably has. Although people, when when you read uh, older pandemic literature, <laughs> it's a pretty niche market. Yeah. The, the society goes back. People forget. Mm-hmm. The other thing that uh, is interesting about Australia today, so this is the beginning of July, it's winter in Australia. This is their flu season. They've had almost no flu. Now, mm-hmm. they've probably just delayed their season rather than their season has disappeared. The flu the flu virus is there. But our, our hygiene, our personal hygiene, our cleaning of surfaces, our not touching each other, our not uh, blowing our nose into our hands and wiping it on the door handles, probably helps general infectious disease. So you're not going to catch norovirus spreads in a very similar way. It's a droplet spread onto surfaces thing. So norovirus has has not happened in our hospitals in the time of this virus. Mm. And flu, well, we'll know in the winter, the UK winter, whether flu is lower than than it would normally be. And we're hopeful that it will be because flu on top of coronavirus is going to be a challenise for it. Yeah. I mean, Nicola Sturgeon told me that she will not be the same person coming out of this as she was going into it. Does that resonate with you? It does resonate. It, it resonates on a couple of levels, professionally. So you, so you, you I, I, how should I, how should I put it? So, so you can't argue that uh, those of us who have been in the in the centre of the storm haven't had purpose. So, at some level, professionally. It is a, a huge learning experience. It is, gives you massive experience both in the political stage and those tables where you thought you would never be and you now are for long parts of your day. Lots of experience in the media and other places. Now, others will judge whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, and I, I do apologize for being on people's Spotify playlists and kids <laughs> watching YouTube and suddenly this idiot appears that they don't know or care about. So it's not my fault. I don't choose when I appear on your iPad. 
and then at a personal level, I think that there's something about this that will change me and others. I, I hope for the better. I hope that the the levels of gratitude for our emergency services, the uh, community spirit for our homeless, the fact we've been able to uh, leave our numbers through neighbours' doors, all, all of those things, I, I think potentially make our community a better place. But it's important to balance that with the fact that pandemics are not good. Pandemics mm-hmm. are horrific. And we, we shouldn't forget that over 4,000 people today are mourning loved ones in the last three or four months. And even it, today, there will be people mourning death and illness and have people in intensive care tonight that they're worried about. So you've got to balance the the good things that we may be able to make the best of with the misery of having a global pandemic. Has your faith been important to you during this time? It has. I I, I rely on it in my in my normal life, uh, and it, it's no different. Now I, I have been a, a little bit uh, less deliberate with it because the the my, I I help in a church in Airdrie that my family have been involved with for many many years, and it's an important part of our family life, both the both the church itself, but also all the friends and family that are around that church, and we've had to closed down. We've had Zoom calls and uh, we've had uh, people who you would never have thought would manage an iPhone and an iPad to to get together. So that, that's gone very well. We've combined with another big church in Glasgow where one of my pals runs it. So it, it's kept going. And on a personal level, yes, it, it does help me. It, it helps me to see a bigger picture. It helps me, I hope, to keep going with an integrity around some of the things we talked about already, about the decisions you're making at the time are the best you can do at the time rather than uh, being criticised for them three months later. So, so yes, it's a, it's, a, it's a big, important part of my life and my family's life. And that, that kind of, as you say, you're in everybody's living rooms at the moment. Um, that profile, that rise in profile, has that increased your status at home in any way? It's done completely the opposite. <laughs> They're, they, they're now, even my sister, who started off as a kind of super fan, is now thinking, seriously, do I have to watch that again? <laughs> I must one? tell you that when I told my mum I was interviewing you, she said, um, could you ask him about the shade of blue paint that's on his uh, living room wall at home? I don't know if it's your living room wall. but doesn't want the zebra painting, does she? There's a lot of, there's a lot of interest in the zebra painting that's just <laughs> on my right shoulder. Dot, who's my private secretary, has had uh, more more correspondence about the zebra painting than she's had about any other single part of the pandemic. I'm sure people are listening to you. (laughs) And I suppose, finally, there's a story about you as a child telling your mother that you didn't think your father was anything. And while notwithstanding that kind of damning, precocious assessment of your dad's achievements, would you say that you now are something? No, I honestly wouldn't, Mandy. I'm I'm just a boy from Airdrie trying his best. That sounds artificially modest. I, I think I've been thrown into a maelstrom of uh, clinical advice, politics, and some really, really difficult uh, work inside a global pandemic. I should I should uh, mention my father, having started as a coal miner at 14 years old with no qualifications, retired as the head of an engineering department in a further education college with an open university degree and did his degree at the same time as me. So he he partly created the monster. Yeah. He, he is partly responsible. For, it's always uh, appearance. For my, for my level of ambition and uh, limited achievement. So 
he he would he would in quiet moments be proud. In more extrovert moments at the dinner table, he would say, "For heaven's sake, you've never lain in three feet of water with a pickaxe and a fife mine. Just pick yourself up and get on with your day." I I think both pieces of advice the the moment when he's proud. And the moment when he says, you've never lain in three feet of water, I think both pieces of advice in balance are how you can how you can do your job to the best of your ability, actually. I, I think he's I think he's correct. Well, thank you very much and stay safe. Thank you. Okay, and now we have the final part of the show. This is a section which was originally designed for Mandy to go off on some sort of rant um, about parts of society or the world that she immediately demands change in it's since sort of changed doesn't it man it's not often a, it's always not always a rant anymore now it's just sometimes some thoughts that have come yeah. to you but what have well, you got just, well that's just me isn't it liam well i still think it's a bit like the chat in the bar room in the hmm. bar um and i guess i would be if we were sitting in a nice bar with a glass of wine at the moment i'd be saying to you you need to watch a fantastic new series on bbc2 mrs america um just amazing basically a drama based on the launch of the women's liberation movement in the 70s uh, in the states and the role of a republican very very bright woman phyllis schlafly played by kate blanchett blanchett who basically campaigned as an anti-feminist Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think what we're seeing is that she was probably to blame for the US's very conservative approach to women's reproductive rights that it has now. Mm. And it, yeah. it, just watching it, apart from it, the 70s soundtrack, which is just it part of my soundtrack, I guess, of life. Um, It was a reminder for me of how far women have come on the journey towards equality, but also yeah. how so many things remain the same. Um, yeah, was... I, I actually, I watched the first episode uh, last night, actually, on your recommendation, and I thought it was fantastic. I thought the, the, the main character really is superb. Like, she's oh, so well acted. That. Yeah. And you're right about the soundtrack as well. That adds a lot to it. I suppose it's different for me because I don't have memories of this. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't actually have memories of that. <laughs> but certainly my mother was very much part of that particular um, time and uh, just the kind of awakening of feminism. And I just, I, I think Kate Blanchett is just so fantastic in that role. You know, the idea that you could play this woman who instinctively we should all recoil from, but you can actually feel huge sympathy for. It's fantastic. There was a, I have to tell you, there's a particularly great line um, in the drama. It was attributed to one of my heroines, Gloria Steinman, who, when seeing how easily male politicians were bought off by Schlafly and her supporters, basically by being offered good home cooking, said, mm. men, men, they've finally found the best smoke screen for their chauvinism, women. <laughs> and I, I just felt that was a line that stood the test of time and could be equally applied to some of the current debates about women's rights that are ongoing now. Yeah. Um, I thought what I thought was really clever about it was the way that they go in basically only presenting her view. So it's only yeah. towards the end of the first episode that you actually encounter the women's liberation movement. Yeah. Um, up till then, it's entirely the world through her eyes, and she's she's really an expert on international, you know, on, on the Soviet Union or on missiles and stuff like that, and gets dragged into this. Yeah. Oh, just yeah. It was fun, you know, watching a woman that was clearly incredibly bright, mm. and how she so easily just subjugated her intelligence, um, and I was just 
it's superb. Everybody should watch it. And certainly current crop of um, young women should watch it. It also, for me, sadly, put into sharp focus how control over our own bodies was at the core of the birth of feminism Mm. um, and why the publication of the Cumberledge Review last week seems so painful. Uh, Yes, that's right. Yeah, so that that was a review into the vaginal mesh um, kind of scandal. Well, it was three. It was three particular treatments. So it was the uh, use of vaginal mesh. Um, it was looking at a particular pregnancy, a hormonal pregnancy test, and an anti-epilepsy medicine, and how that harmed unborn babies. Yeah. But basically, it um, the review just exposed that kind of arrogant culture in which medical complications were dismissed as women's problems, and women routinely had symptoms attributed to psychological issues or it being that time of life uh, and kind of anything that women suffered were perceived as just oh you know that'll be part of the menopause. Um, Baroness Cumberledge who did the report she said as women we know when things are not right with our bodies we're the first to know when that information is ignored it's simply belittling and adds to the suffering. Yeah and I suppose that that comes on the back of the you know, all sorts of news that came out over the course of the year on um, heart attack symptoms, on uh, the way that cars are designed, on the way that yeah. seatbelts don't really protect women, on yeah. crash test dummies, they're all six foot men. Yeah. I mean, do you know, Liam, you've heard me banging on about this over and over, but women's biology and attitudes to it do ma- matter. I mean, I, I have written, you know, quite a lot and had it mentioned, had my menopause mentioned at Westminster and at Holyrood. But I spent years talking to GPs about menopause symptoms and was told I was depressed, that I should try and be more sexy, that I should take antidepressants, that I was just imagining it, blah, blah, blah. And when I asked to be referred to a specialist NHS menopause clinic, I was asked by my male GP what that even was. No? I mean, do you think that's, is that, are we at a tipping point in that? Because obviously, as you say, you've talked about it quite a lot, but I think quite a few politicians have raised it now. Um, I think Christina McKelvey's talked about it a few times in the chamber as well. I mean, to what extent do you think that's changing? It's it's hard for me. I just, but I think as you see um, women becoming more visible in um, parliament anyway, but women of, of a certain age, so women reaching their mid-40s, early 50s. We have a first minister that will be 50 next month, this month. Um, I think they start to relate more to things that are happening. And, I, you know, I just think that that's a, a natural occurrence of events. And hopefully, as we start to raise the pro- profile of these things, things will change. And politicians should definitely do something about that. So they say a week is a long time in politics, and you've just heard a fraction of that condensed into today's Politically Speaking podcast. I hope we've enlightened and entertained, and the next time you hear someone say they're not interested in politics, remember you know a podcast that can help them with that. If you enjoyed this episode of Politically Speaking from Hollywood Magazine and the chat between Liam and I, remember to subscribe and leave a review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever you listen to podcasts. Also remember to check out our fortnightly release of Hollywood Magazine available in print or online at hollywood.com. Bye for now.